1: Welcome back. Hello.
0: We are doing episode fourteen, and this is a slightly different episode, both in in terms of possible, possibly our topic and the way the way this came about. So, for this episode, we are working with our good friends at the Journal for the Northern Renaissance, who asked us if we might consider doing an episode to. Examine, among other things, the way the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare is uh, is being commemorated in Britain and across the world. And we thought that was very interesting, and we said yes.
1: We did, yes. One of the things that the Journal for the Northern Renaissance is doing um, is putting together a blog where readers can participate and interact. And one of the things that they're doing is highlighting... Um, podcasts that are of interest to um, authors and readers of the journal and so'll we'll be available after we post this podcast um, will also be available at the Journal for the Northern Renaissance blog.
0: Yes, we'll tweet the blog address when we have it. Uh, so if you um, listen to us uh, normally, then go and have a look at the blog and I'm sure there'll be lots more things there that would be of interest.
1: Yes and we'll be on there
0: and we'll we'll answer questions and there'll be a there'll be a discussion forum um and we will we look forward to continuing the conversation yes we do so where do we start
1: where do we start well approximately 400 years and 5 days yeah, 6 days ago
0: when we were recording yes when we
1: from when we were recording um The bard, the great playwright, William Shakespeare, died. Yes. And because it has been 400 years since he died, there has been an explosion of celebration, commemoration, um, creative output around Shakespeare.
0: The BBC have a whole series called Shakespeare Lives, uh, and we have shamelessly stolen the title of this episode from the BBC. uh, And... We are going to talk about, among other things, what versions of Shakespeare uh, the BBC's season of commemoration is is showcasing.
1: Yes, and how that works. So, how does it work? How does it? Well, it works in a variety of ways. I think for us being being in Britain um, means that we we see a particular volume of of. British media reporting on Shakespeare. Um, and there's a lively tradition, and has there has been, I mean, constantly, I'm not a historian of Shakespeare, but there's been um, the performance and production and, and stewardship, would you say, of Shakespeare's work since the time of his life?
0: Yes, yeah, so Shakespeare, over the, over the 400 years since his death, has become a national treasure. He's, he has come to represent Britain. He has come, come to represent British nationhood. He is part of all that is good about Britain, according to this narrative. And that you see that very much in the way the BBC uh chose to commemorate uh the this this particular anniversary. Uh there've been uh live events featuring landmark famous Shakespearean actors like Ian McKellen and Judy Dench and David Tennant and Prince Charles on stage. Uh doing a playful rendering of, of Hamlet's to be or not-to-be soliloquy um, there's been, for example, the uh, Shakespeare's anniversary was uh, preceded by a few days by the Queen's birthday and for the Queen's birthday Prince Charles did a reading from Henry V on BBC Radio 4 again reinforcing a particular traditional monarchist conservative view of what it means to be British uh, in the in the 21st century
1: yes and also I think it's quite interesting there's a kind of there's a the promotion of this idea that that all British people
0: yes.
1: are literate in Shakespeare that all British people are deeply familiar with his plays that they've read
0: or, his plays yes or it should be aspirational so yeah. you, it, it you become a better person as a British person, from reading Shakespeare. There, there is a moral quality uh, above and beyond any kind of pleasure you might get from reading the text or, or watching the performances.
1: Which is quite interesting because I think the, f- the first production of a Shakespeare play that Tom ever saw was a production of Richard III that I was in like yes. three years ago. Yes. And he is, as we learned last week very British. And so there is a kind of... There's a a sort of BBC, Royal Family, RSC, Old Globe kind of narrative about the role of Shakespeare in popular British life that is very interesting. I think it's it's a very, very interesting um, narrative. You know, one that is focused on the within ten minutes Benedict Cumberbatch's Hamlet sold out all of its tickets and um it, and David Tennant's you know landmark performances you know that are televised mm. Mm. throughout you know cinemas across the country and there's a um there's a whole infrastructure that supports this idea mm. that mm. that consuming productions of Shakespeare reading Shakespeare understanding Shakespeare being willing to listen to Prince Charles recite Shakespeare on the radio, you know, these all tap into an imaginary about Shakespeare and about British people, which, to be honest, you know, as an American, I find quite convincing because that is a narrative that Americans believe, often believe, about Britain.
0: And and it's a narrative which, in, in the transformation of Shakespeare as morally beneficial, or in the transformation of Shakespeare into someone who... Manages to personify the the greatness of the nation, in 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 making Shakespeare as an, a figure of aspiration. You know, if you are culturally literate, then Shakespeare is someone you aspire to understanding, aspire to accessing. There is a a change which is not unlike the change in football that we identified last week, which is that. Uh, ...working-class audience, which is what Shakespeare would have predominantly had when he was writing... ...Shakespeare's audience would have been working-class. Uh, the working-class nature of Shakespeare's audience is replaced by a middle-class audience. Shakespeare, over the 400 years since his death, has been converted into a high-art middle-class audience. And there is, there, is a, there is an interesting way in which that transformation in class goes hand-in-hand with co-opting, appropriating Shakespeare to represent British nationhood.
1: Yes. And I think what's interesting is that process is happening primarily, I think, in the 19th century, kind of post-Restoration theatre, kind of um, return to the classics, um, and a, a time of very serious re-examination and reconstruction of what it means to be British, given the context of the empire. Um, And so in the 19th century and then into the early 20th century, there's a consolidation in terms of um, what Shakespeare means for Britain, um, because Britain's place is now one which is in the context of a newly globalizing World, an imperial world, yes. and Shakespeare is the kind of the voice, yeah. almost of of British storytelling, British morals and values. Yes. You know, truths about what it means yeah. to be British and to be human, which we'll talk about in a bit.
0: It it reminds me of uh, a lot of Macaulay's famous, infamous minute on Indian education, where he describes Indian literature as he says the entirety of indian literature is not doesn't have as much value as the single shelf of any good european library and of course at the height of that hierarchy that canon of european literature is shakespeare shakespeare is the the monarch of that that realm as it were he is the greatest and he is the greatest embodiment of what what the british civilizing mission imperial civilizing mission could mean.
1: With the exception, I think, of the the Bible.
0: Yes. I
1: mean, which is an interesting thing that you and I have talked about, um, that Shakespeare's plays and his poems and his life become a sort of alternative canon to the books of the Bible in terms of constructing, you know, moral tales and um, explanations for what it means yes. to to be a spiritual person
0: famously on on the bbc radio program desert island Discs, where you get in, invite famous people to to pick eight songs that they would take with them if they were marooned on a desert island you're allowed two books shakespeare and the bible um bbc did a, a thing to uh, one of the things they did to mark the anniversary was a quiz which they called bard or the bible where they, they gave you quotes and you had to dis- had to figure out whether it came from shakespeare or whether it came from the bible and there's this that there is that way in which uh, both the the equation of the two highlights the moralizing influence of shakespeare you know reading shakespeare as in reading the bible will make you a better person
1: yes do you think i'm just wondering as we speak here do you think that some of the the transition um in terms of a class audience or a class association with Shakespeare is is a language question. Because a lot of people have said this, that Shakespeare's language has become over time inaccessible and therefore requires greater and greater levels of education in order to access the text in the first place.
0: I think that is probably true if you are thinking of reading Shakespeare. But I don't think it is quite as true if you're watching a performance. Um, a few years ago, what well, many years ago now, possibly, possibly ten years ago or more, I was in the cinema in Wood Green in London, and we were watching the Merchant of Venice film version with Al Pacino playing Shylock, and you know, it was a perfectly, perfectly decent film. Um, it. For those of you who don't know, Wood Green in London is a very multicultural, multi-ethnic, working class, you know, uh, an area of deprivation within scare quotes in, in terms of these categories, uh, a part of London, and a, a large part of the audience would not have watch Shakespeare as as, as theatre, would not have read Shakespeare, were not familiar with the stories. And it was clear that they hadn't known the story of Merchant of Venice before they before they went to the to the cinema. And the trial scene at the end where Portia turns to Shylock and says, you know, you have to become Christian in order for in order in order for us to spare you and I, I remember someone in the audience shouted out, you can't do that, in, in a wonderfully indignant voice. And it occurred to me that that was probably about as close an experience as one could have to a kind of authentic Elizabethan experience of Shakespeare. So I, I think the, the language issue is more important when when you're reading and studying Shakespeare. I think it is much more easy to access Shakespeare in performance, but the ways in which, you know, again going back to last week's episode on football, the way in which theater is now more expensive than it used to be, and it is it is not considered affordable in the way that going to the cinema might be for a working class audience.
1: There's also an etiquette around no, going to the theatre, and so it, it's quite a, um, it can be quite an isolating or off-putting experience if it's not something that you do regularly as well, in a way that going to the cinema is, is, is not, I think.
0: So if one of the narratives of Shakespeare, or one of the narratives associated with Shakespeare is that he represents Britain, he represents what it means to be British... Paradoxically, the other narrative of Shakespeare is that he represents what it is to be human. Uh, Shakespeare fans, Shakespeare scholars again and again talk about the universal quality of Shakespeare, that somehow Shakespeare encapsulates what it means to be human. And the qualities that Shakespeare uh, displays through his plays are qualities that transcend time and space and culture and and so on. and, of course, that is reflected in the fact that Shakespeare has been taken up, translated, uh, and adapted, performed in all sorts of different um, contexts. I'm sitting looking at a book. Uh, there's this book by Andrew Dixon called Worlds Elsewhere, Journeys Around Shakespeare's Globe, which is a very good book. And it run- charts the ways in which Shakespeare has been rewritten, uh, sometimes literally in other languages and sometimes in, into different forms, Uh And it is fascinating to me how these two apparently competing narratives can coexist so easily.
1: It is interesting. I mean, being from the United States and not from Britain, um, and being someone who has loved Shakespeare for the majority of my life, for me, the... The first narrative that we've talked about, the British nationalist narrative, is completely unfamiliar to me because it's not something that I grew up with at all. And it's certainly not something that I've, you know, been exposed to until I moved to Britain. Um, the second narrative, Shakespeare as, as um, you know, how is he? He's described as a prophet. He's described, um, you know, he's, he's called the bard. He is the, the poet on human existence. Yes. Um, he's transcendent, um, he's a, he's a philosopher, poet, all of these aspects of Shakespeare I am very familiar with, um, and you know, the, there's all kinds of, of, you know, context specific aspects about performing and, and producing Shakespeare in the United States. There's a particular kind of culture of, and practice of performing and studying, um, and, and directing Shakespeare. Um, and, you know, we've talked a bit about Shakespeare in India as well. Um, but this universal story about Shakespeare's ability to tell us something about ourselves, you know, that, that kind of meaningless trope, um, is at the heart of, of how Shakespeare companies continue to, to justify their funding and, and to promote themselves and talk about why they're still relevant and it's this this argument that Shakespeare is relevant for all of us.
0: He is the great humanist, right? He 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 somehow manages to distill the qualities that make us human, according to this narrative.
1: Yes. This narrative, you know, to be fair to it. Has to deal with the fact that there are many characters and you know elements of Shakespeare's plays that are um, difficult for a liberal sensibility, a social liberal sensibility. In twenty sixteen, you've already mentioned Shylock. Um, you know Othello, women generally. Um, what I mean caliban you know there's well caliban is a,
0: is a classic is a is a great example uh, so in 2012 when london hosted the olympic games us uh, 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 not dissimilar to to the to to the current anniversary celebrations moment of british national performance you know britain through the through the hosting of the olympic games britain defined itself in a particular way.
1: Which is customary Which, for the Olympics absolutely, ceremonies.
0: Absolutely. And of course you can't have British national performance without Shakespeare. So Shakespeare was always going to be part of the, the uh, opening ceremony. The question is how would they fit him in? And the way they fit him in was they got Kenneth Branagh, famous Shakespearean actor-director, to play the role of British engineer and pioneering figure of the Industrial Revolution is King Kingdom Brunel as doing a reading of Shakespeare. So Brana was playing Brunel, playing Shakespeare, as it were, uh, which is a, a slightly odd odd setup. anyway.
1: It felt a little it odd. It felt a
0: little odd. Now the question then is, which bit of Shakespeare are you going to read? Now there is an obvious text to go to, well, multiple obvious texts to go to, where Shakespeare eulogizes the nation. The text I'm thinking, the the speech I'm thinking specifically is John of God's speech in which, in uh, the second, the Dial speech, where he's he's talking about how great, great the island of Britain is. Now, the Olympic ceremony, the inauguration ceremony, opening ceremony was di- directed by Danny Boyle, you know, a liberal, left leaning, uh, film filmmaker. So, at various other points in the in the ceremony, there was. Nods to the welfare state, to the NHS, to immigration, and the virulent patriotic, monarchist reading of that particular speech clearly was felt to be
1: isolating, isolating,
0: difficult, uh,
1: problematic. problematic.
0: So the speech they settled on was another speech about an island, which is the Isle of This Island is Full no, Full of Noises speech which is Caliban's speech from The Tempest. Now, Caliban, for very understandable reasons, has become an emblem of colonial oppression. Caliban had this island where Prospero and Miranda come to the island and they take the island away from Caliban's mother and enslave Caliban, Mm. using the argument that we are civilizing you and we are teaching you how to speak and so on and so forth. So when Caliban is... Extolling the virtues of the island and the riches that, his ha- that the island has, he is talking about a colony. When Isimbad Kingdom Brunel is speaking the, those lines, he is talking about Britain. And he is talking about a Britain which has had an industrial revolution, which is based directly on the profits of empire. So while the, opening, the organizers of the opening ceremony may well have thought, this is a slightly better speech to use here, what they've done discursively through the use of that speech is to not just justify empire, but complete the transformation of ownership of the riches that came from what was the empire, you know, things like the Kohinoor Diamond and the Elgin Marble that we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, those things are now British because in a a national performance in the capital celebrating this olympic games they have become british through the through taking the the literal words of are be taken in order to justify empire
1: which in a sense i mean this is you've picked up this example i mean it's well we will try and post a link to this because visually it's quite a striking yes image um, of Kenneth Branagh performing this speech. Um, and even if you aren't as familiar with Shakespeare as we might be, um, it's, still, it's still a fascinating thing to watch. Um, and you've picked up on this example specifically because of the kind of interwoven relationship between these two narratives of Shakespeare. And how they have, in a sense, become two sides of the same coin, um, which is a sort of imperialist, um, post Enlightenment belief in um, European European positioning as as the the foundational human, yes. as as the 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 most human the most human human yes. in a
0: sense. Yes. And Which is which is a wonderful phrase because there is a Doctor Who episode where where the doctor goes to meet Shakespeare and the Doctor describes Shakespeare as the most human human. Um and of course in the in the casting of Shakespeare as the most human human what is revealed for us is the faults of humanism as, as a mode of thought, which is that it has always, post, post-enlightenment post uh, humanism, has always been exclusive. It has always existed in order to define what type of people get to be called human and what what type of people are left out of this narrative of humanism. Right?
1: Exactly. It's interesting because this doesn't take away from and I think in fact makes more interesting the fact that there is some really fascinating and progressive and um, and radical applications and and interpretations of Shakespeare you know in various contexts around the world um, you know we're familiar you you more than I am familiar with the context of India um, in the United States there's a huge kind of Growth in in the popularity of using Shakespeare as a form of rehabilitation and a form of therapy, um, in spaces such as prisons, particularly with um, with juvenile prisoners and inmates um, who are who are you know the focus of rehabilitation programs, um, patients in in hospitals, um, people who are affected by you know post traumatic stress disorders and. Um, and speech impediments, um, the emancipatory aspect of Shakespeare is highlighted a lot in the American context.
0: In India as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think we certainly don't want to take anything away from either that form of emancipatory use of Shakespeare or indeed the way in which Shakespeare has been and continues to be used uh in radical, anti-imperial, counter-colonial forms. Um, I think what we would say is that those uses for us don't reinforce this idea of Shakespeare as the most human human uh, or Shakespeare as representing some kind of transcendental humanism. Rather, we would say that the... The ways in which Shakespeare's use to further resistance, or, or you know, personal emancipation, or or c- collective emancipation, um, suggests what we might use Gladys like, Spivak's notion of the the subaltern speech. In other words, for the subaltern to get their voice heard, they have to learn the language of the of the mainstream. They have to learn the language of hegemony, and that is what you do. You follow Foucault. You where there is power, there's resistance, so you take you take the language of the powerful and you mend it and you bend it and you shape it to suit yourself. So, you know, you you make a Bollywood version of Shakespeare and you put songs in it. And you 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 don't think of Shakespeare as sitting on a pedestal up up, up there and you have to follow Free given prescribed ways in which you can use Shakespeare. You you tear him down. You bring him down to your level, and you you work with him and his text as an equal. That is what, that and that that way you produce something new. Yes, I think we are done. Uh, neither of us are Renaissance scholars. We should have probably said that at the start.
1: Yeah, we're certainly not Shakespeare. We're
0: not Shakespeare scholars, scholars by any means. So we're fans. Uh, we have yes, uh, and we're interested in the politics of commemoration and, and the way Shakespeare uh, and Shakespeare's brand is used has been used in various ways. Uh,
1: Shakespeare's brand, I like <laughs> that.
0: Uh, so, you know, let us know what you think and uh, we look forward to carrying on this conversation on the on the journal's blog and discussion forum. Uh, thanks for listening and we'll be back next week. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode.
1: I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick.
0: And I have been Anindya Richardry.
1: You can contact me on Twitter at DrHFitz.
0: And me at Dr. r.
1: Our music was provided by the agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory.
0: Thank you.